And I don't know if you've ever felt the hopelessness of a tragedy. Just that, that, that horrible, horrible news that just leaves you feeling just completely empty. Broken, emotional, but almost beyond emotion. Just hopeless. Imagine how Jesus' followers felt following his death. Luke 23, 49 says this, and I appreciate the way that Luke phrases this. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. We're going to be focusing this morning on verses 44 to 49. But look how they respond to the scene of hopelessness. The Messiah was there, hanging limp on a cross, his body dead, crucified by the Gentiles at the request of the Jewish leaders. Those watching in the distance felt only loss, only hopelessness. Even though Jesus had told them he would rise from the dead, none of them got it. As they're looking in the distance, they see their best friend dead. They see all the promises, what's going to happen. They see the Messiah. They knew that he was the Messiah. All the dreams demolished. And I appreciate the understatement here by Luke. I'm sure he could have said so much more, but I think that this really matches up with what hopelessness feels like. It's just unspeakable, right? Were there any words that could really do justice to how they felt at that moment? And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. The Gospel of Luke, written by Luke, doctor turned church planter, later historian, knew the whole story, though. He knew that hopelessness would end in hope. And today we're going to look at Luke 23, verses 44 to 49. And we're going to see four responses of those at the crucifixion of Christ so that you will be devastated by the hopelessness of the crucifixion, but also place your hope in Jesus Christ. And I, I'm cautious saying that because I don't want us just to be devastated. Right? We, we do not grieve like those who don't have hope. I know that's referring to those who have passed away in the Lord. But we just don't look at the crucifixion and it's not about pen. It's not just about feeling really, really bad about what happened to Jesus. But when I look at what Luke includes here, he wants us to be devastated. He wants us to experience some of that hopelessness, but he doesn't want it to stay there. He also wants us to hope in Jesus Christ. And this short passage from Luke 23 to 44 to 49 has both of those. The first response we see is from God himself as the Father speaks. Luke 23, verse 44. At the baptism of Jesus, the Father spoke, and we know what he said. You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. At the transfiguration of Jesus, the Father spoke. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my Son, my chosen one, listen to him. But at the crucifixion of Christ, the Father by nature, what the crucifixion was, 
couldn't say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Because the son of God was about to take the punishment for our sins. And so God doesn't speak in a voice, but through supernatural signs. And the first of them was darkness. The first way that God spoke was through darkness. And really, it is an appropriate way to speak, seeing what was going on there. Verse 44 says, It was now about the sixth hour, which is noon, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock. Jesus had suffered all that night. The Father had rejected his pleas to be rescued from the Father's wrath. Judas had betrayed him. His friends had abandoned him. His people had rejected him. He was lied about at trials. He was beaten by soldiers. He was mocked by criminals. He was flogged. His hands were nailed. His feet were nailed. And that was until 6 a.m. No, at 9 a.m., the third hour, when Jesus was crucified. At noon, the sixth hour, three hours into the crucifixion, Jesus had already been suffering for three hours. It says that darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun at noon should be blinding, right? The sun at noon should be blinding. I thought about that today. Maybe you did too at noon. It was a bright, beautiful day. But that wasn't what happened there in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know the range of the darkness. It says from the whole land, and really it could be translated to the whole earth. I don't know what happened. I'm not going to say that the whole earth wasn't covered in darkness. I don't know what the extent of it was. At least that region was covered in darkness. And we don't know if it was black as night. Maybe people had to quickly get out torches. Maybe there's some smolders left over from torches, left over from torches at morning. Or maybe it was just dim. Now, we know that Passover occurs at the full moon. And that's, if you ever wonder why, we've got a rotating date for, for Easter, Resurrection Day. Since Passover occurs at the full moon, a solar eclipse would have been impossible. I don't know a lot about astronomy. If you look it up, they're impossible. They're, they're, they're mutually exclusive. This was, not, this was not a solar eclipse. The moon was not blocking out the sun. What happened was supernatural. I can't say that God didn't use some kind of means like a cloud, but that doesn't really match up with what we're seeing here. It says in verse 45 in the beginning, because the sun was obscured, or really it's literally, and you'll see in your notes, the sun was failing. I don't exactly know what that looked like, but it's terrifying, right? I don't know if it just got super dim. I don't know if it was so black that it started getting cold. I have no idea what that was like. God had suspended the laws of nature to send darkness upon the earth. And, that, and, and, and if anyone has a problem with that, we are going to celebrate the resurrection on Sunday, right? God raises the dead, and he can do whatever he wants to the sun. Old Testament prophecies of judgment often spoke of God darkening the earth. Like Amos 8, 9, I'll just read a couple here. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Now, he's not specifically talking about that. It's just a, a picture of God's judgment is going to be displayed through darkness. 
In Joel 2.10, it says, Before the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. These prophecies of judgment were well known to have the language of darkness and the, and the sun failing. The Jewish crowd would have looked at what was going on and known that it was judgment. They knew why creation was unraveling before their eyes. Maybe they wondered why. Jesus knew though, right? Jesus knew what the judgment was. He knew that God's judgment was upon him. Not for his own sin, but for ours. That sun being hidden, that sun failing, was Jesus receiving the penalty of our sins. Isaiah 53, 4-6, it was prophesied. Jesus knew that this would happen to him. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves have seen him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And no doubt, that's what the Jews thought at first, at least until the sun started failing. He's getting what he deserves. How dare he claim equality with God? Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's what happened when the son failed. God's judgment was upon his son for our sins. The second half of verse 45 has another of these supernatural speakings of God, and it says, the veil of the temple was torn in two. We know from the accounts in Matthew and Mark that the temple curtain was torn after Jesus' final breath. Luke includes it here because I think it's the same kind of supernatural speech. He wants to include together the supernatural signs that God is giving. Now, many agree that this veil, this, this curtain, was that that was separating the holy place from the most holy place, from the inner throne room of God in the temple where the high priest only went once a year on the Day of Atonement. It was God who tore the veil, separating himself from his people. Now, the crowds at the cross wouldn't have known right then what was going on at the temple. I can imagine, though, that news started spreading through the city as the priests went in and came out saying, the curtain has been torn. It says it was torn from top to bottom. And I don't know how they knew that. Maybe someone was inside at that moment when it was torn from top to bottom. Imagine the news spreading through the city that was packed with the, the, the thousands and thousands who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Like that darkness that they just went through, they would interpret that veil being torn as God's judgment. As if God were exhausted and fed up with the worship of his people. Now we're going to see that there's hope in that veil being torn. It's not just hopelessness. But those there and those who left the scene at the cross would go back. And all they would know is what judgment are we going through? What is going to happen to us? You can just imagine how unsettling it would be for us. 
to have darkness for three hours when it wasn't, you know, something he'd been looking forward to for days on Facebook and with all these maps of sky charts and stuff. Terrifying. Well, in the midst of that hopelessness, we see the second response, and it's the response of Jesus Christ himself. The second response after the Father spoke is that the Son trusts. The Son trusts. We see that in verse 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, we'll get to what he said in just a minute. This is Jesus' second loud cry, but the only one recorded here in Luke. The first was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Recorded in Matthew, Mark. Jesus exerts himself, as he would have had to on a cross, to take a breath big enough to shout out loud. And so what does he shout? We see in the middle of verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Just as the Father was pouring out an immeasurable, an infinite amount of wrath on his Son, the Son continues to humbly, obediently trust the Father. The Father rejected the Son, but the Son does not reject the Father. So what does he use his last speech to do? To say, Father, I trust you. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And you'll see in many of your Bibles, those are in capital letters there. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a a quote from Psalm 31, verse 5. A commentator tells about that psalm. It's the prayer of a righteous sufferer who wishes to be delivered from his enemies and expresses trust that his fate is in God's hand. Jesus knew all the psalms well. He knew this one well. This is a great psalm for him him to quote from. I'm going to read the first five verses. Because, I don't know, it's just beautiful that here Jesus... He's meditating on God's word while suffering for our sins. How unlike us is that? How holy of a Savior. Psalm 31 says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. You can imagine Jesus meditating, quoting on this himself. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. And deliver me from whom? Here. Yes, the hands of the wicked. But deliver me from yourself, who suffering the wrath for sinners. Deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. Jesus had been in a net secretly laid by his own friend, Judas. And then he says, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. He entrusts himself to the Father's goodness. While suffering the wrath of our sins, the Son entrusts himself to the Father with his own life. The Son was confident that when he gave that last breath, the first thing he would see would be the Father's smile. That this wasn't going to end in eternity away, suffering forever. But that he would open his eyes and see the Father. The end of verse 46 says, having said this, he breathed his last. He breathed out. It's not the natural way to describe your dying breath in Greek. It suggests Jesus' willing sacrifice. He breathed out. He gave up his spirit. John 10, 11 says that 
Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is what we see Jesus doing here. He willingly lays down his life for his sheep. For us, who he died to save. John 10, 17 to 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. We see him laying down his life here, willingly giving up his spirit. Jesus was killed. It's true. Scripture is very clear about that. Jesus was killed. He was killed by the Gentiles. He was killed by the crowds, Peter says that. He was killed by God the Father. But he also laid down his life willingly for the sheep. To his final breath, God's son hoped in God's promises. He was obedient to the end. The next response we see, we saw the father speaking supernatural signs, the son quoting scripture, and then in verse 47, we see a soldier who understands, a soldier understands. It says, now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. The centurion, he's called a centurion, he was over 100 soldiers. He was the Roman there in charge of the crucifixion of Jesus. Perhaps a man who had seen, overseen other crucifixions in his past. I don't know if he was a specialist, we don't know. But this morning was unlike any previous crucifixion he had seen. Jesus was not pleading for his life. He wasn't proclaiming his innocence, saying, you've made a mistake. He wasn't reviling his abusers who were mocking him, using those last breaths to rail down cursing upon them. Instead, Jesus asked God to forgive those who crucified him, and he welcomed into paradise a thief who had been mocking him. For the centurion, this was unlike any crucifixion he'd ever seen. After only six hours, the man gave up his life. He wasn't fighting for breath after breath after breath for days if it could have gone on. And sometimes crucifixion lasted four days. He gave up his life after six hours. We're not even talking about the darkness that had descended upon the earth. He had never seen anything like this before. As time passed, the centurion realized what injustice had been done. Injustice that he had been part of. He was the one who had commanded those soldiers to pound the nails into Jesus' hands, commanded them to hoist up the cross. He had stood while the soldiers mocked this crucified man. Just standing there. Maybe commanding, I don't know. So what does this Gentile centurion say in response? It says that he praised God. And I don't know that this means that he went through a full conversion. The word there is he glorified God. And we see that many times in the gospel. When, when someone attributes to God what belongs to God. When they saw Jesus' miracles, they glorified God. They realized this is not right. And the centurion says, certainly this man was innocent. Or this man was righteous. He glorified God saying the truth about Jesus Christ. This is a righteous man. This is an innocent man. This is a man who does not deserve this. This is, this, is, this is a righteous man. This is someone who deserves the opposite. And I do think that as we read through here, we see the hopelessness of the scene. 
a centurion, a Roman soldier regretting what's happened, a Roman soldier declaring that this man was righteous. The Jews should be saying that. The fourth response we have is what the crowd does. The crowd fears. See that in verse 48. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. Now, Luke doesn't tell us the motivation for why the crowds were there, and there's probably many. There's probably some, we definitely know that the religious leaders were those, who were self-righteous, who were offended by Jesus' teaching, who thought that they were good enough and really hated Jesus' holiness. They were eager to see Jesus get what finally was coming to him. Maybe there were parents, as there always are at hangings and capital punishments, at least there have been in the past, parents who brought their kids along to make sure that they wouldn't get involved in the same kind of crimes. There were probably many of those who came from out of town, who had been there to celebrate Passover, time on their hands. Well, let's go see the crucifixion. Others may be looking for entertainment. But as they returned to Jerusalem, after Jesus gives up that final breath, the crowds beat their breasts. They are in agony. Is it, des is it desperation that they're feeling? Is it remorse? Is it fear? The day wasn't what they wanted. Perhaps this beating on their breasts was them asking God for mercy for forgiveness for having shouted out, crucify him, for forgiveness for having laughed at the cruel jokes, for not doing something to rescue this innocent man. We don't know what was going on in their heart, but they realized the hopelessness of the situation there. And now imagine them. After they had seen God's judgment, they, they had seen the sky grow black, and now they go back to the city, and they hear about the temple. And they hear about that curtain being torn. What kind of Passover was this going to be? Had God come out of the Holy of Holies to avenge his son? Was wrath and judgment coming upon them all? Had God forsaken Israel? Had he abandoned his temple? How hopeless they must have felt. That's why I think that Luke includes these. So that we get a sense of that hopelessness. He wants us to shudder at the thought of that darkness, to be disgusted at how the righteous son of God was treated, that we would understand that the crowds had no choice after what they saw but to beat their breasts and to cry out to God, to be rescued from judgment. But this scene, and we know this because it's the gospel, it's good news, it's not all about hopelessness though, right? There are reasons for you here to hope. And the first is that Jesus responded to his father's wrath with trust. And there's reason to hope in this. Jesus responded to his father's wrath with trust. There was no sin of disbelief in Jesus Christ. Even while suffering judgment, he stayed faithful to his father. He laid down his life willingly and entrusted himself to him. 1 Peter 1, 19 talks about the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus was that perfect Passover lamb. He was unblemished and spotless. And even when the sons 
the Father's anger for our sin was being poured out upon him. He stays spotless, clinging to God's word, clinging to his own Father, his rock. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what we see in Jesus there on the cross Entrusting himself, commending his spirit to the Father's hand is his sinlessness. He knew no sin. Became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might become pleasing to God as having been perfect law keepers instead of law breakers. That's one reason why we would have to hope. And, and, and there's other things that Luke could have recorded. He was a good historian. There's things that he left out, but he included this so that we would see how sinless and blameless Jesus was. But there's also reason to hope because that veil was torn. And really, I think when we see the supernatural signs there, God speaking, we see a before and after picture. And there's the, the before picture of the judgment. There's the after picture of the veil being torn. And they didn't get that then. See, none of Jesus' followers understood that day why the veil was torn in two. But God tearing that veil, that curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place is reason for you to hope. What, what, what was closed to you, the presence of God, eternal life, knowing and loving God has been open to you. The curtain was to keep people away from a holy God. But now the entrance to God has been thrown open to all who are willing to come through his son. We're going to see even in Hebrews that, 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 that his flesh is that new curtain. We can go through him. The punishment of sin which kept you from God has been paid. Acts 13 verses 38 says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that's true for all of you who are here tonight. Because there's hope in Jesus Christ, because he took the punishment of sinners, forgiveness is proclaimed to you. You can enter into that holy of holies. This is good news. For any who say, I have no hope but Jesus Christ. You can have forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus perfectly obeyed. And then God spoke how pleased he was with the son by ripping open that curtain so that we can enter in and have communion with him. Let's pray. And then we're going to celebrate communion together. Father, we thank you for um, saving for us the despair in this scene. We trust you that our hearts need it, that we need to see the injustice of it, the hopelessness of it, the cruelty of it, but the judgment here. Father, we needed to see your judgment. Lord, we deserved to be on that cross. We deserved more. Father, three hours of your judgment, three hours of darkness would not be enough for us to satisfy your wrath. That's why hell is eternal, Lord. It could never be satisfied. The punishment against you is too great, but your son could extinguish the flames of your judgment. We thank you for who Jesus is. We thank you that he obeyed you to the end, that he stayed on the cross, 
that he was humble and clinging to you and entrusting himself to you, that he willingly gave up his life for sinners like me. Lord, thank you, Father, that he died in the place of sinners. I thank you for the hope of forgiveness that there is. I thank you, Father, for the good news that the veil, the curtain has been torn open and that sinners can be in your presence, Lord, and that when we are in your presence, ultimately we'll be there forever. We get to be your people and you can be our God. And this is only because of the work of your son. So we thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you, Father, for the good news that has been proclaimed and that we get to participate in now. And we do pray, Father, for those who don't know you. Lord, Lord, we pray that even your spirit would intercede through our prayers now. We pray that you would work in their hearts, that they would respond in faith, that they would be, be horrified by the scene, but that they would see the hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you, Father, we get to celebrate the truth of his resurrection, and, and, and the reality that you accepted the sacrifice of your son. Father, we pray, uh, Lord, as we remember how Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood uh, was, was spilled, Lord, that it would be good for our hearts that we would confess those of us who know you, our hope in Christ alone again. In Jesus' name, amen.